on August 1st, 1914, Sir Ernest Shackleton and his crew set sail from London aboard the ship Endurance. They were bound for Antarctica, where the famous explorer hoped to traverse the continent on foot. But Shackleton never made the trek, because before the Endurance could reach land, the ship became hopelessly lodged on an ice pack. It was January 1915, and from this point on, their goal was simply survival. The crew faced many hardships in the months that followed, including freezing temperatures and near starvation. But of all the frozen terrors they faced, none was more disheartening than the long polar night. The sailors grew uneasy as winter set in and the light began to fade. In early May, the sun vanished altogether, not to be seen again until late July. Shackleton's biographer wrote, quote, in all the world there is no desolation more complete than the polar night. It is a return to the ice age. No warmth, no life, no movement. Only those who have experienced it can fully appreciate what it means to be without the sun day after day and week after week. Few men unaccustomed to it can fight off its effects altogether, and it has driven some men mad. Unquote. The bottom line is that humans need light and interaction to stay sane. Without light, we lose our sense of time. Without interaction, we become consumed with loneliness and boredom. And with this sensory deprivation comes the strangest, most unimaginable psychological effects. The Rolling Stones wrote a song in the mid-60s called Paint It Black. At the end of the song, it says, I want to see it painted, painted black. Black as night, black as coal. I want to see the sun blotted out from the sky. I want to see it painted, 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 painted black. In the song, the author has suffered a sudden loss and can't bear that life must go on without that person. His mourning has veiled his appreciation for the vibrant colors around him. And he can't even consider anyone else in his present state. There's little respite in the author's grief, and as the song ends, he seems to sink deeper and deeper into his suffering, saying it's not easy facing up when your whole world is black. Now, these words can also reflect a spiritual truth in our world today. When we're living in darkness, our lives are black, and we want everyone around us and even all of creation to be black as well. But if we only knew what true blackness was like, we would do a closer self-examination and we would long for that light. Eternal outer darkness is how Jesus describes hell. He says it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he teaches us that it's a real place where real people will be sent. But being sent there is a voluntary choice. Now Jesus has offered us light, life, and peace in place of all that. Taking all the darkness of, his, of this world upon himself so that we could see the true light of God once again. This morning in our scripture found in Exodus 10, 21 to 29, the Egyptians are going to be plunged into darkness for three days. It will be a total darkness that can be felt. They'll not be able to see anyone else or even have the ability to leave their homes will be so dark. The three days of physical darkness will certainly affect them 
emotionally. But the darkness is really symbolic of their spiritual state. God doesn't want them to stay in darkness, which is why he keeps imploring Pharaoh to repent and to let his people go. He wants Pharaoh and the Egyptians to know that he is the Lord. Which brings us to the big idea this morning that God desires his people to live in the light. You know, he wants them to know that, accept that, and be brought into this light as well. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord God, we pause. We pause to thank you for the study of your word. It's a light unto our path, and it's food for our souls. May we be attentive to your Holy Spirit this morning as we dive into your scriptures. Let us be convicted, corrected, and instructed in righteousness by it. Please do what only you can do in our hearts and minds and wills this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning there's two points. The first is no warning. And that's found in verses 21 to 23 of chapter 10. So what God's word says. That the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. So this morning we're studying the ninth plague of darkness. It's the third plague in the third cycle of plagues. And it most resembles the plague of gnats and the plague of boils. And that there was no warning to Pharaoh that it was coming. Having no warning would have brought Egypt to a standstill. It would have made its impact all the more dire and frightening. God instructs Moses to act, and from that action, God will bring this plague. In this instance, he's to stretch out his hand toward the sky, and God will bring this darkness that can be felt over all Egypt. Once God gave Moses the instructions, he immediately obeyed. He stretched out his hand and his staff, which is implied, toward the sky, and instantaneously total darkness covered the land. Mackey says three days emphasize the completeness of God's control over the situation in Egypt. Total darkness is literally translated as the dark of darkness and pitch black darkness. Alter describes it as the claustrophobic palpability of absolute darkness. Pharaoh and the Egyptians would have seen this darkness as judgment. And it would have been an ominous sign of what was to come. Total or thick darkness is used in the Old Testament for the devastating effects of judgment, of God's judgment. Isaiah 8.22 says this, Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. And Zephaniah 1.15 says this, That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. The darkness over Egypt was so intense that the Egyptians couldn't see anything else, couldn't see anyone else, and they couldn't even leave their house for three days. 
Imagine living in the same house with your family, but it's so dark you can't even see them. Imagine not even being able to leave your house because it's so dark. This eerie darkness would have caused panic and foreboding throughout the whole land. Some commentators say this plague was caused by an eclipse or a sandstorm that made light and visibility non-existent. But think about this. They couldn't even seem to light a candle. And there were no lights outside like the, the moon and the stars. God had made it so flint couldn't be ignited, fires couldn't be started, and the moon and the stars were no longer in the Egyptian sky. It was a true and total blackout sent by God, and the Egyptians could do nothing but grope around in the darkness. It would have been dangerous to move around. You could fall, you could run into things. It would have just been easier to be still. Again, for the third plague in a row, it was unlike anything the Egyptians had, had ever experienced before. But surprise, the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. This was truly a supernatural darkness brought on by God and not some natural occurrence. Now, we don't know if the cycle of day and night continued in Goshen as usual, but certainly they were able to have light in their houses. And this continuing to have light signified that the presence of the Lord was with his people. Guzik says, light is not only a physical property, it is an aspect of God's character. What we see in the, with the ninth plague is God, in judgment, withdraw his presence so significantly that the void remained in his darkness, which could even be felt. And concurrently, God is light for the Israelites as he is for us. Isaiah 60 Verse 3 says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Revelations 21, 23, and 24 says this, talking about the new Jerusalem. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God brings it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Physically, God made it so his people had light in order that the Egyptians and the Israelites would both know that he is the Lord. God's people should be literal lighthouses in a dark world. You know, the Egyptians were not only struggling physically in the darkness, but emotionally as well. There would have been widespread panic. There would have been a belief that the natural order of things had been stopped. It would have caused sensory deprivation, disorientation, depression, and psychological distress. And since they believed that darkness brought death, they would have been terrified and would have had a sense of doom. You know, they also worshipped the sun, and the sun god Ra. For them, every sunset represented death to them. But each sunrise offered them a hope of the resurrection and the life-giving power of Ra. They had faith that the eternally rising sun could never be destroyed. And each morning they celebrated Ra's victory over the forces of darkness and chaos. 
Darkness for three days straight was an attack by Yahweh on Ra and showed that he was more powerful than the most powerful God in Egypt. But for Pharaoh, it was even worse. He was Egypt's God. He was known as the son of Ra, the incarnation of Amon-Ra, who maintained the cosmic order. Quirk writes this, Within the reign of each king, he, meaning Pharaoh, alone appears as a living representative of the sun god on earth and enjoys a unique sovereignty in the practical exercise of power. <laughs> Children in school were instructed to, according to Riken, worship Pharaoh, living forever within your bodies and associate with his majesty in your hearts. He is Ra by whose beams one sees he is one who illuminates the two lands more than the sun disk. You know, they were to ascribe majesty and eternity to Pharaoh and even pray to him. Egyptian worship was deeply offensive to Yahweh. As Egyptians were worshiping a mere mortal and the, as the eternal God. Pharaoh was claiming attributes that belonged to Yahweh alone. And, and that's idolatry. But we see idolatry is alive and well today. It's alive in our culture as well. Origen wrote this. What each one honors above all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. Whatever we honor, admire, and love instead of God is our idol. The question is, what or who do we love most of all? Who or what is our supreme deity? Is it God? Or is it money? Is it another person? Certain lifestyle? Is it ourselves? Walt Whitman's famous poem, Song of Myself, says this. I celebrate myself and sing myself. The song of me rising from the bed and meeting the sun. Divine am I inside and out. And I make holy whatever I touch. If I worship one thing more than another, it shall be my own body. You know, we depend on our own abilities, and we admire our own accomplishments. We devote nearly all our attention to making our own plans, meeting our own needs, serving our own interests, and satisfying our own pleasures. We even complain about our own problems. It's all about us. We idolize ourselves. Let us be a people who only worship the Lord and no one or, or anyone else. And that brings us to our first next step on the back of your communication card this morning, which is to stop making myself the object of my worship, turn my eyes upon Jesus, and worship him alone. That brings us to our second point this morning, which is no compromise. And that's found in verses 24 to 29 of chapter 10. Again, this is what God's word says. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our, live our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God, and until we get there, we will not know 
what we were to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. So again, Pharaoh summons Moses and seems willing to let the Israelites go, to go worship the Lord, even though this plague is likely already over. Moses was probably summoned after the three days of darkness had already finished, which would have been the first time Pharaoh contacts Moses before the plague was over. But we see this as evidence because during the three days of darkness, Pharaoh would not have been able to send anyone to get Moses. And second, Pharaoh did not have to ask Moses to ask God to stop the plague. It had already come to an end, according to God's timing rather than a prayer from Moses. Pharaoh now gives permission for Moses to take the women and children with him, but makes a stipulation that he can't take his flocks and herds with them. Pharaoh again is trying to bargain with God and Moses. He still can't let go of whatever authority he thinks he has and wants to control and dictate what happens to the Israelites. But Moses was not willing to compromise. He wasn't willing to compromise previously, and he's not willing to compromise now. He tells Pharaoh they will not leave without their flocks and herds, because that's where their sacrifices and burnt offerings are going to come from. It's the only way they could worship the Lord. The proof that Moses and the Israelites were living in the light was their unwillingness to make even the smallest compromise in their commitment to worship God and him alone. Moses uses the phrase, not a hoof is to be left behind, meaning that every animal had to go with them. They would need some of the animals in order to worship the Lord, but he didn't know which ones. And they wouldn't know until they got to the desert. You know, it's possible, we may think that he was making excuses here, but actually it was while they were in the desert that God started to unwrap how the sacrificial system would work. We see this in Leviticus chapters 1 to 10. This was Pharaoh's third attempt to get Moses and the Israelites to compromise their worship to the Lord. First it was, go, but don't go too far, which may translate for us today as, you know, give God your Sundays, but do what you want the rest of the week. Second it was, go, but leave your women and children behind, which may translate today to, you, know, you don't have to influence your children, you know, your wives, your, your girlfriends. Let them make their own decisions about worship, about church, and about Jesus, instead of leading them in the way of Christ. Third, it was go, take your children, but leave your flocks and herds behind, which translates you don't need to surrender everything you have to the Lord. As long as you give him a little bit, he'll be happy. You know, the human will hates absolute surrender. Not a hoof is to be left behind reflects the response of God to every attempt we make to surrender less than everything to him. Question is, do you believe that everything we have belongs to the Lord? Do you believe that God has the title to all we possess? Everything we have is given to us by God to be good stewards of for him. Our time, our talents, 
and our treasures must be placed in his hands. Not a huff means that all I have and all that I am is held at the disposal of the Lord. Those who are living in the light are the ones who refuse to hold anything back from the Lord. So let us faithfully recognize that God wants all of us, our hearts, souls, minds, and all our strength. That he wants everything we own to be used for his glory and for his work in the world. Let us refuse to hold anything back from him. That brings us to our second next step, which is to not leave a hoof behind, surrendering my whole self and all my possessions to the Lord for his glory and for his use. Now, Pharaoh, does, he doesn't have an opportunity to respond because God hardens his heart. And again, he's not willing to let the Israelites go. In, the, in this context, as, as it was back in chapter 10 of verse 20, this is again a self-hardening of the heart by Pharaoh. Despite the pressure from his own people, he would not voluntarily allow, allow them to leave Egypt. Normally the reference to God hardening Pharaoh's heart would signify the end of the plague narrative. But here we see there's further interaction between Pharaoh and Moses. This change in the narrative alerts us to pay attention to what's coming next. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart causes him to respond in violent fury. He reacts angrily and irrationally, expelling Moses from his sight. He even threatens him with death should he ever see him again. I thought that was ironic. After not being able to see anyone for three days, Pharaoh says, get out of my sight. He is frantic. He knows he's outmatched. He's not willing to admit defeat. And we also see how much he's come to hate Moses as he threatens him with death. Uh, see what Moses does? He agrees. <laughs> he agrees with him. He responds in the positive to Pharaoh's ultimatum. He would never appear before Pharaoh again. Pharaoh has cut off his only means of salvation. Only Moses could help Pharaoh escape the spiritual darkness he was in, but he refused to listen and expelled Moses from his sight for good. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart should be a clear warning to all of us to examine our hearts regularly to make sure we're not hardening our hearts toward the Lord. Pharaoh's actions were outrageous in a number of ways. First, it violated the immunity that Moses should have had as a prophet of God. Moses spoke for God, and so Pharaoh's anger should have been directed toward God and not Moses. This violation would have been seen as a serious breach in that, in, in that time and place. Second, it was mean-spirited and vindictive. Pharaoh had been given many warnings to let God's people go. And even after agreeing to do so, he continuously went back on his word. Now, instead of admitting that he was wrong, he threatens Moses with death. And third, it was cowardly. He tried to get rid of, Yah he tried to get rid of Yahweh's demands by pre preventing his messenger from bringing those demands to him. An impasse has now been reached, and the stage is set for the final interaction. If Pharaoh wasn't going to deal with Moses, it meant that he was going to have to deal with Almighty God himself, which honestly should have been a daunting prospect. This points to the plague's narrative soon coming to a conclusion. 
My conclusion is from a Christian author, Kate Hannon. That's what she writes. Johanna had lived her entire life in the dark cave, deep underneath the earth's surface. She'd never seen light, not pure light anyway. There were little glimmers of light that reached her here and there, a fish that glowed, a glimpse of the outside world if she wandered too close to the edge, and an occasional traveler with a headlamp. Joanna and the thousands of others who lived in the gigantic cave passed their existence in darkness. They stumbled along, making their way as best as they could in the blackness, often falling to their deaths in huge drop-offs, getting bitten by poisonous creatures, or twisting an ankle on a rock, all because they could not see. They daily walked right over incredible crystal formations and jewels, only they didn't know it because they couldn't see them in the darkness. They remained oblivious to the breathtaking colors and dazzling designs. As odd as it may sound, these people lived in darkness by choice. I know that sounds crazy. Who would choose to stumble in the fearful darkness? Who would choose not to see? And why would they choose that? Well, although very few admitted this was the reason, the people chose the darkness because they did not want to see themselves as they really were. In the darkness, they convinced themselves they were clean and healthy, and they didn't want to admit that wasn't true. Light showed them things as they really were. It showed them the dirt all over them. It showed them the dried up blood and the uncared for wounds covering their bodies. It revealed the sores and disease that ravaged their bodies. It showed them their mangled hair and weak eyes. In short, it showed them that they were a mess. Had they only realized the healing and life that could be theirs, if they were only willing to step into that light, they wouldn't have hesitated for a moment. Had they only really understood that their present life in the dark cave ended only in death, they would have raced into the life that the light offered to them. But instead they refused. Living in darkness, loving it actually, rather than the light of life. John three nineteen to 21 says this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by, by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Light is an amazing thing. Without it, we don't know how to walk safely, nor can we see the beauty surrounding us. Light shows us things as they really are. It reveals the truth about ourselves and the world around us. God is light and truth, and he reveals himself in his word, the Bible. Are we willing to let God show us the truth, even if it's not initially pleasant? Are we connected to God through his word and through prayer? Or are we trying to live this life on our own without God groping around in the darkness? 
I mentioned this earlier, but if we only knew what true blackness was like, we would probably do a closer self-examination and long for the light. Jesus has offered us light, life, and peace in place of that. Taking all the darkness in the world upon himself so that we can see the true light of God once again. 1 John 1, 5 and 7 says this. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. There is no darkness in him. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Ephesians 5.8 says this, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the, in the Lord. Live as children of the light. You know, God doesn't want any of his creation to stay in darkness. He wants everyone to know that he is the Lord, accept him as their savior, and be brought into the light that only he can give. God desires his people to live in the light. And that brings us to our final step, next step this morning, which is to forsake the darkness, accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and begin to live in the light. As the ushers prepare to collect the tithes and offering, and as Gene and Roxy come to lead us in a final hymn, let's bow our heads for a closing prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the study of your word and that it can show us, show ourselves approved unto you, workmen that do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Help us to stop worshiping ourselves, to turn our eyes toward you and to worship you and you alone. Help us to not leave a hoof behind and to surrender our heart, mind, soul, and strength to you along with all of our possessions. And let it all be for your glory and for your use. And Lord, help us to forsake the darkness, to live in the light. And if there are some here today that do not know you as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.